All right, we are continuing in Romans chapter 8. I wanted to have a few more things to say on Romans 8, verse 15 and 16, which we were studying last week. I have a few more things to say on that. Uh, And that says as follows, The Spirit, Holy Spirit, you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. What an incredible verse. We are God's children. And the testimony of that is the very Holy Spirit that God has implanted uh, within your heart. And so as he sees here, he speaks to us here about the issue of adoption. I wanted to make sure I I drilled that home, adoption. It comes out of the Roman legal system that he's referring to here, where in Rome, if you were an adopted child, you could never be disinherited, never. Uh, You could be disinherited if you were a biological child, but not as an adopted child. And so you could never lose your status, you see, as a son or daughter if you were adopted. And that is exactly what Paul is teaching us. This is about assurance. You are a Christian. You have given your heart to God. What has he given you? He's reached across eternity. He saved you. He's implanted the Holy Spirit within you. And he's declaring that your status as an adopted son or daughter is secure forever. Meaning what? No power. No authority, no principality will ever take you out of the hand of God. And so you're guaranteed as a Christian, as you have this, as you're saved. And that's the question, really. Are you saved? Because if you're saved, you have this assurance that goes on and on and on. Uh, And this sets the stage for eternal security. Uh, and, And that is an important thing for you to understand, eternal security. And I believe it. And what that says is that once you are saved, you are saved forever. You cannot lose your salvation. Just as you had nothing to do with your salvation, absolutely nothing to do, uh, God saved you. At the same time, nothing, nothing will take you out of the hand of God if you are saved. Uh, And that all of this happens to believers in salvation. Critical doctrine to understand this. Now, Adoption also gives us a new status and a new set of relationships. We now have a new relationship with God. He's our Abba Father. He's our Dad. We have this loving, personal relationship with God. Christ becomes our brother. Uh, We have this new personal relationship with Jesus. And we have new relationships with other people who are also brothers and sisters uh, of, of Jesus and our brothers and sisters. That's why you go to church, because you're there with the family of God. This gives you a chance to connect with these people who are also walking with God. They're going to pray for you. You're going to pray for them. You're going to lift them up in every possible way. All of this comes about because of this new relationship that God has given you through the Holy Spirit. Now, it's important to recognize that all of our authority for all of this goes back to God the Father uh, and through Jesus Christ. Uh, You look back at the opening phrase of the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Our Father. Now, nobody in the Old Testament actually talked about God that way. 
Uh, Jesus, using the Greek there, was Abba Father. Abba Father, meaning uh, dead. Uh, and, and that word coming out of the Greek uh, was agape, meaning a certain kind of love that was deeper, more fundamental than any other kind of love. Not the way you love your wife, not the way you love your children, but a deeper, more fundamental, profound kind of love in the most personal way. Uh, and this is well documented historically that Jesus did that, that Jesus introduced that to us. Uh, and he always used that form of address, uh, referring to the Father, always. And he authorized his disciples also to use that form of address. And so the use of the word Father in the Old Testament was rare uh, and can only be found, uh, based on the research I did, 14 times. Uh, and in none of the passages does any individual Jew refer directly to God as my father. Uh, moreover, the distance between God and the people uh, of Israel was widening uh, at the time of the Lord. It was growing more distant. Uh, and, and you see this as you study. Uh, in fact, uh, as I studied the last several hundred years before Christ came to this world, uh, none of the rabbis talked about the coming Messiah. None of them talked about the prophecies. That is why uh, when Jesus is born, you wonder why, uh, why the Jews are not prepared, because they hadn't been taught. They had not been taught for several hundred years. They hadn't been taught about the privacy, prophecies. And so this gulf uh, between what should have been the people of God and Christ and God the Father was widening. That's why Jesus spoke about Father, about Dad, about the loving relationship that, that God has for us. Uh, in fact, the, the great name of God, Yahweh, we don't even know how to pronounce that properly because the Jews will not say that word. The Jews uh, would revere God so much that they would never write his name or speak his name. Uh, well, that's not what God wanted. Uh, God wants to have a deep, profound, personal, agape loving relationship with us. Now, all of this, you see, is overturned by Christ uh, because he always called God my father. He always did. The only exception, as I said last week briefly, was when he was on the cross, uh, when he's on the cross and when he's dying and when he becomes finally the very sin offering of all time uh, and the relationship between himself and God is cut off because God is so holy, so pure, he cannot abide evil or sin. Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Uh, and you see there the fact that at that point, uh, Jesus had been cut off in that loving relationship. Well, it was only for a short time, uh, uh, as he would ultimately be raised from the dead and defeat death. And so now we all come to God as his children. We all come to God as our dad, a deep, abiding, personal relationship. Now, the third verse in that section of Scripture that we talked about gives us another reason to know that we are in the family of God. It says the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, let me make something clear about the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is an identifiable personality. As much as you can call the Godhead a personality. The Holy Spirit is an entity, okay? It is an entity. Uh, and so that entity is testifying uh, about God. He's testifying to your spirit. Uh, and so uh, here in that verse, the first spirit referred to is the Holy Spirit. The second spirit referred to in that verse is your spirit. And so it is the veritable Holy Spirit in your heart testifying to your spirit about Jesus Christ. It is the very evidence, you see, that you are a child of God. How do you know you're a child of God? It's because the Holy Spirit confirms it and speaks it to your heart. You are, in fact, a child of God. What is the evidence? Well, I believe that it is possible to have a genuine experience uh, of the Holy Spirit in one's heart. I've had it numerous times. Uh, Sometimes it will be even just driving my car. Other times it will be in church. Sometimes it will be when I hear music, uh, gospel music in such a way. But all I can tell you is that there are times when I am so overwhelmed by the Spirit of God that that I bow my head and tears will come out of my eyes. I'll be crying. Uh, and and I, there's no reason for tears other than the fact that the Holy Spirit is connecting me with God and speaking to me about God. Now, some of these experiences can be false. Uh, we understand that, uh, and, and, and we want to have discernment with God on that issue. But ha- a, direct, a direct experience of the Holy Spirit is a valid testimony of the fact that you are a child of God. And I'm, I'm sure that many of you have had such an experience. You know, I personally testify that I have uh, n- numerous times. Uh, and so when you experience God in such a special way, and that's why when I see this revival in Asbury, I like to believe that it's a true thing because that's, I believe, the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is acting in a community-wide basis, bringing people to God. I, can, I believe that that can happen. That has happened historically before. Uh, and so what happens? You're moved to tears. You're moved to being part of the family of God. Listen, I can tell you this. I can't wait to go to church on Sunday. Now, that was not the kind of John I was 20, 30 years ago. All right? I went to church. But I went to church sort of as an obligation. You understand? I knew it was Sunday. I knew that God expected me to go to church. That was part of my obligation as a Christian. Now there's no obligation. Believe me. No obligation. I can't wait to go and be with the people of God. I can't wait to hear what God has for me. And somebody will say, well, you're preaching. Of course you've got to be there. But here's the thing, and I want you to understand this. I'm preaching to myself first. You understand what that means? I'm preaching to myself first. When I deliver these sermons, this first party of that sermon is me. Me. And my dad used to say, you know, he says, when I preach and I point out at the people, he says, I have one finger pointing out, I got three pointing back at me. How true is that? I got three fingers pointing back at me, meaning uh, if it bounces off me and it hits you, then it's good. That's why we go to church. It is an accumulation of the Holy Spirit. You want to see what the Holy Spirit has for you? You go to church. 
you go to church, you go to a place where God is speaking, uh, and, and you will have an incredible experience as you are drawn closer to the kingdom of God. Uh, and I hope all of you are doing that. Do not neglect that in any way. Do not neglect it. Now, we're going to continue with the next verse in Hebrews, which is, in Romans rather, verse 17. Romans 8, verse 17. And it says as follows, Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Now, why would Paul, as he's focusing on this great chapter uh, relating to your assurance as a Christian, your assurance of your standing, why would he suddenly introduce the issue of suffering? Of suffering. Seems to me that if you want people to join your club, the last thing you would say is, hey, you joined my club, man, are you going to suffer? Are you going to be persecuted? You know, but it just shows you, you understand the discernment uh, of God as he reveals the full panoply of what it means to be a Christian, what it means. And so if we were really trying to comfort people uh, with salvation, I'm not sure we would introduce this concept of suffering. Uh, many of us think the issue of suffering is problematic. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, that great the theologian wrote a book on this topic called The Problem of Pain. Uh, and you can still get it. It's in print. It's a terrific book. Uh, and others have approached this issue under the title of Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Right? Why do bad things happen to good people? If God was a good God, why would he allow this? Uh, and I spent all day yesterday during my sermon you know, for 35 minutes on that issue. You can go online and hear it. The first reason that Paul starts this concept this way, he was a realist. Uh, he knew that people that were in the first century church were, in fact, suffering. He knew that they were suffering. Uh, and, and the early ministers of the gospel, even as they obeyed the, the Great Commission, had become martyrs. Uh, Peter and John were martyred. Stephen was killed. Paul was imprisoned and beaten and eventually martyred as well. And so there you have it. All of the early guys with Jesus, all of them effectively were all martyred. Now, when you read the New Testament uh, with suffering in mind, and you will be startled to discover how extensively suffering is mentioned. Now, Jesus mentioned it first. Jesus said, in John 16, verse 33, in this world you will have trouble. In this world you will have trouble. Why? Why, Jesus? I'm giving my heart to you. I'm walking with you because this world is under the dominion of Satan. And if I can shortcut this whole topic, make it as simple as I can for you, it's this. In the Garden of Eden, when everything was laid out perfectly and man rebelled against God and fell under the sway of Lucifer, at that moment, everything changed in this world. Death was introduced into this world. Uh, nature was crushed. Uh, weather was crushed. Uh, all of the things that should never have happened, earthquakes, tsunamis, 
hurricanes. All of this becomes uh, as a result of sin in this world. Uh, And so even as we walk with God, even as we walk with Christ, we are swimming in a sea of evil. Don't ever forget it. Uh, Being a Christian does not ensure that you will not have that. You will have that, but you will have the affirmation to know that God is in charge of your life. Now, suffering is as common to God's people today as it was during New Testament times. Uh, We suffer when we lose loved ones. We grieve when life disappoints us. Uh, We groan under sickness and pain, all of this. Uh, and, And Paul, honestly, did not allow him to talk about our inheritance to God without at the same time knowing that the path of glory involves a cross. Yes, you're on your way to glory. You're on your way to Jesus Christ. But the path involves a cross. And the cross involves suffering. Uh, all of us, all of us will have us. We'll, have, we'll experience that. Uh, and, and we need to have the appropriate response to suffering as a Christian. Uh, have you ever asked someone, how you doing? And all of a sudden, they actually start telling you how they're doing? I don't know about you, but sometimes I wish I could get away as quickly as possible because it tends to be overwhelming. You understand? I got this, I got that, I got this, I got that. Oh, my head's going to explode. When you're a Christian and somebody says, how are you doing? Here's the answer. Thank God I'm doing well. Thank God I'm doing well. I know I've got issues. I've got issues. Somebody said to me this morning, you're always, uh, always saying good things about how you feel because I'm walking with God. I'm walking with Christ. How could I not feel that way? I'm going to heaven. All right, I know that, and I'm responsible for the souls of hundreds of people. I'm blessed in such a way. Yes, yes, this is how we live. This is how we should respond. Uh, Unfortunately, for a lot of people, including Christians, our response to suffering is anger. Anger. Uh, This is common with unbelievers who blame God for their misfortune. Don't ever... Don't ever blame God for what's going on in your life, all right? When the stock market sinks, don't sit there and blame God because all of a sudden you've lost a third of of your value. Or don't blame God when you come back from the doctor and you didn't get a good report. Don't blame God for that. You're living in a world of evil. Lucifer has wrecked this world, all right? You're destined to die, when you know that Jesus never destined you to die. That's why I love that chapter where Jesus goes to the family of Lazarus, uh, and they're there, and there's hundreds of people at the gravesite, and they're all crying, and Jesus weeps. He weeps. But why is Jesus weeping at the grave of Lazarus, knowing that within five minutes he's going to pull Lazarus out of the tomb? And I heard somebody speak about it in a powerful way. It said, it's a good thing that Jesus said, Lazarus, come out, and just didn't say generically, come out of the grave, because probably 100 people would have come out. All right? 
But he knew he was going to bring Lazarus back from the dead. Why is he crying? He's crying because he sees the result of death on you. Heartbroken. He recognizes this was not how it was meant to be. This was not how it was meant to be. You were meant to live forever, and this is the result of Satan. And so you can't blame God. You can't blame God. Uh, it, it's important for you to understand this, even as Jesus has, has not promised us an easy way. I want to give your attention to something you may not have read before. Turn to Revelation chapter 6. I spoke about this yesterday in church as I spoke about the justice of God. And I want to assure you that there is no other perfect justice in this world other than God himself. He is the perfect judge. Now look at Revelation 6, beginning with verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. How's that for a profound verse? How's that? There's, there's tremendous truth in this verse as it relates to us. First of all, it tells us that there's some awareness in heaven of what's going on in this earth. We don't know how that works, but clearly these martyrs were aware of the fact that the people that had martyred them were still alive and had not been punished. But the other thing is they're asking God to avenge their persecution and their suffering. And so is it right? To ask God to do that? Yes, it's right to ask God. You don't take vengeance into your own hands. You ask God within his perfect will because he's the perfect judge. And then you see the answer from God. It's not time yet. There are others still to join you. Wow. Wow. God, you're going to allow other people to be martyred? Yes, within his perfect will. He will, yes, he will allow some suffering and persecution to go on because it's within his greater plan. He sees the beginning of time and the end of time, and he ties it all together. And so you have to understand there that that gives you an insight uh, into pain and suffering uh, and, and that God is aware of it. It's a powerful verse there as we do this. Uh, and so this brings us, you see, to the value of suffering according to a correct theological view of life. And there is a value in suffering as a Christian. Uh, now, Paul is speaking here in this chapter uh, of being the sons and daughters of God. Uh, and so he speaks of suffering, you see, as the veritable proof of that relationship because you're sharing the very suffering of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so as I've studied this, it, it, it became clear to me that suffering may be uh, visual in three different forms. Uh, 
three different purposes. First, some suffering is in the form of persecution. Now, you saw it in that verse in Revelation. They were martyred for their testimony of God. Uh, Jesus pointed that out in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Look at Matthew 4, verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, this is an important thing. When you're persecuted, you want to be certain that you're being persecuted not because you're an ignoramus, because maybe you deserve to be persecuted, all right? But instead, you're doing something for the kingdom of God. You're advancing the kingdom of God. You're speaking out about Jesus. And we all know that a lot of people don't want to hear that. They're not interested in hearing that. Uh, and and I, frankly, I see it even when I preach. And I'll preach in, in funerals. And you know when I preach in funerals, uh, and, and many of you have heard me preach in funerals, one of the things I do is I hammer home salvation because I recognize that in any funeral there are people that are not saved. And so a significant part of the celebration of life is proving that the person that we're honoring is in heaven because they're saved. And I talk about what it means to be saved. Well, you know what I notice? I notice from time to time that there are people that get up. They can't stand to hear it. They walk out of church. I'll say to somebody, what did that person go? Oh, no, they went out in the parking lot. Oh, they went out in the park. They couldn't stand hearing it. This is what happens when the spirit is adverse. You understand? When God is delivering the message and within your heart you have not given yourself over to God and there is a clash. And if you don't give up, this is what happens. I'm telling you, I see it. I saw it perfectly. And so here it is. But when you're there and you're suffering because you stood tall for Christ, you know what that means. That means whether it's at work or in your country club, Or when you're with people at a table and you talk about Jesus and all of a sudden they look at you like you got a third eye. Am I right? But instead you stay true to God's will. Uh, Whether they they respect you or not, God does. Uh, And so it becomes so, so profound. And then Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. That's something to remember. If the world despises you, they despise Jesus at first. They're telling points here as it relates to this theology of suffering. First, Jesus suffered. He suffered. He was a man of sorrows, the Bible tells us. Suffering was his lot in every way, and it has always been the lot of God's people. This is because we're living in a sinful world. What do you think? You think the world is going to lift you up? Oh, yeah, John, you're great. Oh, you're preaching to people. You're on the radio. You're great. No, no. In fact, I've been in places where even churches themselves don't lift up people like that. Shame on them. You understand? Shame on them. This is why we go to church, to be lifted up together, to be recognized for what we're doing for the kingdom of God. Not to get a personal merit badge. That has nothing to do with it. But here's the thing. We are living in a sinful world. You have to recognize this. Our suffering proves 
that we are on the side of the Lord. Let me tell you something. If you went through life unscathed, I have to question whether you've given your heart to God. Whose team are you on? Lucifer's or his? Really? Because if you're on his side, then you're going to suffer. You're going to experience. Uh, the world does not approve of us in any way. Uh, and then I want you to read, look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Not all suffering is in the form of persecution. Some of it is from God in order to prove holiness. Now, uh, as you look there at, at Hebrews 2, verse 10, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. He's concerned about your salvation. Paul talked to you about working out your salvation. Suffering is a tool that God uses to perfect you. I talked last week about the guardrails in life. Am I right? The guardrails in life, meaning God sets guardrails up so you don't go off the track. And suffering is one of those guardrails that brings you back into the focus of how you live. Look, this is important. God is refining us. God is perfecting us. The refining work of God is discussed in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 9, where it says, This third I will put into the fire. I will refine them like gold. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. I will refine them like gold. You see what God is doing? He is perfecting you. He is making you more like Jesus every way. He is the most skillful refiner that it is. And the refiner knows when the metal is ready. Okay? He knows when the metal is ready. And God purifies us until we see and God sees the face of Christ in his people. That's what this is all about. Walking like Jesus did. Affecting this world in the way that Jesus did. Now, another image of the Christian suffering is of God disciplining us as an earthly father disciplines his children. Now, you guys all grew up in a time where your fathers and mothers whacked you around. Am I right? I know I did. It seemed like I got whacked every day. Every day. Every possible way. I mean, today my mom and dad would be in jail. You know? But back then, you could do that. And here's the thing. Did it ever make you think your father or mother didn't love you? Did you ever say, they don't love me? They're hitting me. No, you understood intimately that it was an expression of love even as you detested it. I can tell you that, frankly, one of the reasons why I, I became a pretty good lawyer was that when I was 10, 11, 12, my mother would say, wait till your father gets home. Wait till your father gets home. And my poor dad at that time, even as he was preaching in church, had a job in a foundry, a bronze foundry. Can you believe it? Where he actually sweat bronze out of his pores. And so he would come home after being in a foundry all day, four o'clock, he'd come home, he was exhausted. He could barely get out of the car, and I knew my mother was going to deliver the bad news. <laughs> and so that meant I had 30 feet 
you understand, 30 feet from the curb to the front door to get my case in. He opened the door, and I go, Dad, you're going to hear a lot of lies from Mommy today. It's all, it's all lies. It's all not true. Uh, it's, it, has no, it has nothing to do with the facts. I'm a victim here. I'm a victim. And then he would go inside, and my mother would regale him, and my father would grab my arm like this. Did you do this? And I'm going like, pulling back, pulling back. Meanwhile, I'm watching his other hand because I know it's coming. And you can imagine a guy that worked in a foundry, what kind of physical specimen he was. Did you? Boom. You understand? Boom. Did I ever say, oh, you don't love me? Of course I never said that because I knew he loved me. I knew he cared for me. Uh, although I wasn't sure about my mother. <laughs> but here's the point on this. You understand what God is doing. This is why we walk with God. Look at Hebrews 12, verse 10. Uh, and, and, and again, a very profound explanation of this. They disciplined us for a little while while they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however... It produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. God is training you. He's training you to be men and women of God. He's training you, and the way he does it is with discipline. All right? You're not just doing your own thing. You're doing God's thing, and it requires discipline, just as you understand your father and mother disciplining you as a child. Now, a third kind of of suffering relates to training. Paul spoke on this issue to his associate Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Uh, and he, here it is, join with me in suffering as a soldier of Christ. This is what we're called to do. Join with me. Yes, we're going to suffer, but it's part of the training ground of Christ. Look also what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. No, uh, and this is like an athlete preparing for a contest. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. How about that? I strike a blow for my body. I keep my body under God, recognizing that I'm even as I preach to others, I have a responsibility to be righteous and walk with him in every way. Now, a second value of suffering is that our witness to Jesus Christ is empowered by it. And I can tell you that this is a very significant fact, because as I've visited people that were dying in the hospitals, as I would walk down the corridor and I would go into a room uh, of people from our church that had given their hearts to God, even as they knew that they were dying and they were days away from going to, to the Lord, there was a loving life coming from them. There was a righteousness coming from them. There was not a sense of sorrow, but there was a sense of joy. The whole room was alive. And yet I've walked into rooms where other people have not accepted Christ, and there's a darkness and a gloom. There's a darkness and a gloom. Why is that? That's because they know this is the end. 
This is as good as it gets, and you understand that. And so when, when you give yourself over to Christ, when you give yourself over to God, the suffering proves that you are a child of God. Now, a good example of this impact of suffering uh, is on display in John chapter 9, where the blind man, you see, grew stronger after the miracle. You remember that? John uh, and Peter healed him, uh, and, he, and so he was healed from his blindness. And so even as the religious elite leaned on him to change his testimony, remember that? It was, excuse me, Jesus healed him. Uh, and, and so the religious elite didn't want him to say that Jesus healed him. They wanted him to repudiate that, and he refused to do it. And so he became stronger and stronger as the hours went by as he refused to repudiate that testimony. Uh, the Christian testimony is given even greater weight, you see, when it is given under duress. And you see that when I, I was talking before uh, we started this morning about the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer by Eric Metaxas. Do yourself a favor. You should all have a copy of that book. You should all read that book. What a powerful book that is. As you see the testimony of this great man, who when he was with, he was in America uh, as the Nazis took over Germany. Uh, he had traveled to America, and he could have stayed in America and been safe, but instead he knew that he was called to lift up the churches, the Lutheran churches in Germany, which were under siege by the Nazis. And he went back, and he kept his testimony up, and they said that even as he spent the last several months in prison waiting to be uh, hung, that he ministered to the other people there in, in a powerful way. That's what happens when you're sold out to Christ. Your suffering takes on an even greater impact. Uh, and here's the point. The end of the story for you is glory. Can I get an amen? You understand? Glory. Not death. Not darkness. Not pain. But glory in every way as we encourage one another to walk with the Lord. Uh, now we have to be aware of the true and false elements of, of evangelism, and we need to be accurate. Uh, our spiritual inheritance is laid up for us in heaven. It's waiting there for us. This is our future. Uh, but there's a false story in evangelism going around today called prosperity evangelism. Prosperity evangelism. This is absolutely false. Read your Bible. Forget what I tell you. Read your Bible and look for the evidence of the prosperity uh, evangelism. How did it work out for the first 12 guys? I'll say 13 guys. I'll put Paul. How did it work out for them? Did they have roses leading them down the path of life? Were they immune to suffering and pain? Were they wealthy? Did they have big houses? All right, in every way? No, they had none of that. You understand? There was no prosperity there because they had been sold out to God. There's no guarantee of prosperity. I mean, I, I'm appalled at what I hear on tele, television from some of these evangelists. I heard, a, I heard two guys talking. I couldn't believe it. Well-known evangelists. I'm not going to mention their names. But both of them were talking about why they needed private jets. They needed Gulfstream jets, both of them. One of them has a net, has a net worth of over seven. dollars 
hundred million dollars. All right, why they needed private jets? And the answer was, well, you know, there's demons on those commercial flights. And then people come up to me and ask me to pray for them. You're kidding, they ask you to pray for you. Yeah, and it interferes with me. It interferes with me. And so I'm going to tell you something. This is why when God called me uh, to preach, that I, I made a, a commitment and covenant with God that I would never take a dollar of income to serve the Lord. Never, never. When I preached, I wouldn't be on salary, all right? And my wife wouldn't receive any remuneration. Why? Because I didn't want that type of sin to come into the church because it infiltrates itself into all churches. A lot of people start off good and then the money comes in. And then it begins to taint the ministry. And then they're looking for more. Oh, God, deliver us from this. And so you see it. Don't fall for that prosperity. It's garbage. It's garbage. We are deigned to suffer. All right? That's the call of God in your life, just the way Jesus did. Are you better than Jesus? Or are you his disciple? And so this proves you're a child of God and you of suffering is that it ordains our path to glory. Paul says this in Romans 8, 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. There it is. You want to be a son and heir of God? There's the proof. He also spoke about it in 2 Corinthians Chapter 4, verse 17. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. What a great verse. That's how you live your life. You look at the cross of Christ. You're walking with Christ. Yes, you're in an evil world. Yes, you're going to have pain and suffering. Yes, you're going to have death around you. You're going to lose loved ones. But you look at the cross. And you know when you look at the cross, you're going to be there in glory. You're going to be with Jesus Christ. You're going to be there with your family. All of this is just temporary. Even if you live to be a 100 how do you compare a hundred to eternity? You understand instead in our puny carnal minds, we get so caught up about this world and about our bodies. Lord, deliver us from this insanity. Give us the vision of who you are. Give us the responsibility to walk with you, Father, to be the kind of men that you want us to be, to go out from here out into the parking lot, out to the world, and deliver the message I just gave to you to people who don't know anything else. That's the call on your life. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for the words you've given us today. I thank you, Father, for this understanding of what suffering means and what it means to be an heir and a co-heir of Christ. Lord, I ask you that you resonate this message in our heart, that this week we dwell on it, and pray on it, and get closer to you in every way, that we repudiate the false teachings of the world that are out there. Instead, we keep our minds fixed on the cross of Jesus Christ. Bless our men. 
Be with them and protect them this week and bring them back safely to continue the study of your word as we put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all.